Well, if you would, turn in your copy of the scriptures to Joshua chapter 23. Two chapters left in the book of Joshua. If you're new, we preach through books of the Bible, and I've been preaching through Joshua now for some time, and we've come almost to the end. We'll read this morning Joshua 23, and we'll study this passage together this morning. So let's begin in verse 1, Joshua 23, verse 1. And remember, as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods, and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. And let me pray and ask his blessing upon it. Our Heavenly Father, we know that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from your mouth. And we know that this text, like all the scriptures, is God-breathed. 
It is your word and it is profitable for us. And we pray that you would benefit our soul. Build us up in the faith. Strengthen us to walk in your ways. Fill us with the knowledge of you and of your Son. By the Holy Spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2015, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named David Randall wrote a little book called A Sad Departure. And it told the story of why he and 40 other ministers decided that they could no longer remain in the Church of Scotland and went through the difficult and painful process of leading their congregations out of that historic denomination. They were, for the most part, the last Orthodox evangelical congregations left in the church originally founded by John Knox and other Protestant leaders when they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church during the Scottish Reformation. What had once been a vibrant church, vigorously committed to Protestant and Reformed doctrine and practice, had now, by the 21st century, formally voted to ordain homosexual ministers. It was this decision which convinced Randall and his fellow ministers that they could no longer in good conscience function within this denomination. Randall called this a sad departure, not only because of the personal loss and pain involved with their departing from the church, but also because of the rich heritage that had been lost by their beloved Church of Scotland as it departed from the truths that it had been founded on in 1560. This unhappy story of how the Church of Scotland departed from Jesus Christ over the centuries, of course, is just one chapter in a much larger story, a tale of infidelity which is woven into church history. The last 2,000 years have seen this same phenomenon repeated over and over again. It's why there's always a need for new churches to be planted and new denominations to be formed and new Christian institutions to be established to replace the old ones that have long since turned away from Christ to follow the ways of the world. Now, as we come to Joshua chapter 23, we see that Joshua, the leader of Israel, saw that very danger, the danger of this same thing happening to the nation of Israel. Of course, he had seen God deliver the nation out of slavery in Egypt, how he had entered into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, how he had led them through the desert and given them the land of Canaan, just as he had promised. And under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, they had stayed relatively faithful to the Lord. Oh, there were many instances of sin on the part of the nation, but each time they had turned back to the Lord when he corrected them through their leaders. But now things were about to change in a very significant way. Moses was gone. And Joshua soon would be too. 
And then the tribes would be left without a strong leader to guide them. And there would be many other factors as well that would put their faith and commitment to the Lord to the test. So Joshua recognized that going forward from here, the nation of Israel was in significant danger of turning away from the Lord and of breaking their covenant with him. And it's that fear which explains what we find in the last three chapters of the book of Joshua. Joshua 22 through 24 contains three speeches that Joshua gave on different occasions to different groups of Israelites toward the end of his life. The first speech we already saw in chapter 22 last time. And he delivered that speech to the two and a half tribes whom he was sending back to live in their territory across the Jordan River. Now today, we're going to look at his second speech. It's here in chapter 23, which he delivered to various Israelite leaders at the very end of his life. And then next week, we'll look at his third speech in chapter 24, which he delivered to the entire nation at around the same time. Now the main point of each of these three speeches is the same, to urge the nation to stay faithful to the Lord by keeping his law after Joshua was gone. So let's begin by walking through the contents of this second speech in chapter 23, and then we'll close by identifying its main point and some of the lessons that we can draw from it today as his people. Now, I want to start by just pointing you to when this speech was given, because the scene is sort of set in verses 1 and 2. And you can see, first of all, it opens by saying, a long time afterward. Probably that is referring to the events of the previous chapter, where when the conquest of Canaan ended, the Lord sent, or Joshua sent the two and a half tribes back across the Jordan River. And now he's saying, A long time after that, this happened. And it says, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. Now, multiple times in the book to this point, chapter 11, verse 23, chapter 14, verse 15, it said, the land had rest from war. In other words, the Canaanites were no longer attacking them. There were stale Canaanites in the land, who needed to be driven out, but the land lay subdued before them. The major battles had been fought. There were still small-scale battles that individual tribes had to wage to drive out the remaining inhabitants from their allotted territories, but the conquest was largely over. The Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. It was a time of peace. And then finally, you see that it says Joshua was old, and in well advanced in years. Now, it's interesting that this similar phrase had actually been used of Joshua back in chapter 13, verse 1, just at the end of the conquest. And there it probably meant that he was now, at that point, too old to continue leading Israel out into battle. So they stopped, and he divided up the land between the tribes, and he told each tribe to go to their inheritance and drive out the remaining Canaanites from their portion in the land. But here it's, it's different. Here it's 
a long time afterward that it says that Joshua was well was old and well advanced in years. And here it seems to refer to the fact that he literally is reaching the end of his life. We're told in the next chapter he died at 110 years old. Keep in mind that people lived longer back then. But he was probably well over 100 years at this point when he gave this speech. Perhaps nearing the end of his 110-year lifespan. Now, who was this speech given to? That's when. Now, who was it given to? Well, it says Joshua summoned all Israel. But I think that in the next chapter, it clarifies that the third speech will be given to the assembled congregation as a whole. But here, it seems to clarify that when it says he assembled all Israel, it says, namely, it's elders and heads, it's judges and officers. So the first speech was to the two and a half tribes. The second speech here is to the leaders of Israel, elders and heads, judges and officers. And the third speech would be to everyone. Now, what does the speech say? Well, it's recorded in the rest of the chapter. Verses 2 through 26 give us the speech. And we can see that he began by reminding these heads of Israel what God had done for the nation up to that point. So verses 3 through 5 is where we see this. Verse 3, he says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So he reminds them how God had fought for them so that they were able to defeat this stronger and more numerous nations that were living in Canaan. And then in verses 4 through 5, he says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Back in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it had said explicitly in the book that when Joshua sort of retired from fighting, there were still portions in the land that needed to be conquered. And then at various points throughout the book, we were told that there were still Canaanites that persisted in the lands that had already been conquered. So there's still a substantial amount of Canaanites living in the land. And so that's why Joshua had divided up the land between the 12 tribes and ordered each of them to finish conquering and driving out the Canaanites from their individual territories. And here, he reiterates this promise that the Lord was going to continue to fight for them, and so that they would be able to drive out the remaining Canaanites. So you see, he tells them that God had already fought for them, so that they could drive, they had been able to drive out the Canaanites that were that they'd already destroyed, and that he had promised to continue fighting for them, so that they could drive out those that remain. So that's the first part of the speech, verses three through five. Then in verses six through eleven, Joshua urged the leaders to then be faithful to the Lord by following through on this, by driving out the Canaanites that remained, instead of the opposite, which would be equivalent to turning away from the Lord and joining the Canaanites that remained. So first, verse 6, you see he says, 
Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now, it's very interesting. When you read that, you might actually remember that that is almost the exact word-for-word commission that God had given to Joshua in the opening chapter of the book, in chapters 1, 5 through 9. And what was this to look like for Joshua? It included not only keeping all of the commands of the law, but that it meant that he was to drive out the Canaanites. That was the fidelity to God's law that he was called to. And here we see that he now passes this commission on to the Israelites. As long as there were Canaanites in the land, God had told them they must drive all of them out. And so he's urging them to be strong, to be courageous, to keep God's commands without compromise. Now, in verses 7 through 8, he then gave the reason why they have to do this. He says, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Now, the point is, as long as Canaanites remained in the land, they posed a threat to Israel's own faithfulness to God, because they were a corrupting influence. They didn't believe in Yahweh. They didn't obey Yahweh. They worshipped other gods. And as long as they were there, there would be a temptation to the Israelites to do the same. And particularly because if they lived together, they would most likely begin to intermarry. And after intermarrying with the Canaanites, the Israelites would join them in their idolatry. Now, instead, Joshua urged them in verse 8. He said, You shall cling to the Lord, your God, just as you have done to this day. And then he encouraged them to follow through on driving out the remaining Canaanites from the land by reminding them that they could do it, not by their own strength, but by the help that the Lord had promised to them. Notice what he says, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he has promised you. Now, I want to point something out here. It is very interesting the way that Joshua laid out this choice that lay before the Israelites to the leaders. Verse 8, they could, quote, cling to the Lord your God. Or, verse 12, they could turn back from the Lord and cling to the remnants of these nations remaining among them and make marriages with them so that they associated with them and they with you. Now, I wondered about this Hebrew word translated cling to. And I turned back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they became one flesh. And sure enough, it's the same word in Hebrew. And I think the idea there in Genesis 2.24 is similar to the idea here. This is the language of covenantal union, of 
faithfulness to a person with whom you are united with in a covenant. So what Joshua 23 is emphasizing is this choice that lay before Israel as to whether they were going to be faithful to their covenant with God or whether they were going to commit adultery against him by joining themselves to the Canaanites and worshiping their gods instead. This is important. You see, this is not just a matter of keeping or breaking rules. If you think of it only that way, be like, what's the big deal? Break a few rules here or there. We don't want to be legalists after all. This is a matter of personal fidelity or personal betrayal. Because the law of God was the terms of their covenant together. Finally, in verses 11 through 16, the Lord warned the leaders of Israel what would happen to them if they weren't faithful to the Lord. And his warning really had two components to it. So the first component is there in verses 11 through 13. He says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. So if Israel betrayed the Lord in order to join themselves to the Canaanites, then God would give them what they wanted. He would no longer drive out the Canaanites from the land, But the Canaanites, whom they wanted instead of God, would end up tormenting and oppressing them. The very thing that they wanted instead of God would become the thing that destroyed them. The second component of Joshua's warning is there in verses 14 through 16. He says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. If only we talked about our death that way, Andy. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Israel, you remember, had entered into this covenant with God at Mount Sinai. It's a great privilege. Out of all the nations on the earth, the one true God has entered into this special covenant relationship. He had chosen them, Deuteronomy 7, to be his special people out of all the peoples of the earth. He had set his love upon them out of all the nations. They were his people. He was their God. That's the core covenant promise. You know, the Old Testament would often use marriage as an analogy for God's relationship with his people Israel. He was the great bridegroom, and they were his bride. And within this relationship, God called upon Israel to reciprocate his love 
by loving him in return. That's why the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how would they show their love to God? By keeping the commands of the law that he had given them through Moses. And like any good spouse, God was properly jealous for their exclusive love and obedience. In fact, he warned them repeatedly, if if you betray me by breaking your covenant with me to worship other gods, you would evoke my holy jealousy. And you remember that in Leviticus 26, first of all, and then more expansively in Deuteronomy 28, where, of course, the law was reiterated. That's what Deuteronomy means, second law. You see these passages where the blessings of the covenant are laid out. If you are faithful to me, these will be the blessings you experience. But there were also covenant curses. If you break my covenant and turn away from me, I will bring these curses upon you. And here Joshua warned that God is a faithful God. And just as he had been faithful to fulfill the covenant blessings to them, to this point as they were faithful to him, so also he would be faithful to fulfill his covenant curses if they betrayed him for idols. And of course, the ultimate curse would be, you shall perish quickly from off this good land that he has given you. See, you should hear echoes of what happened in Genesis 3. This would be like Eden all over again. Just as Adam had been exiled from the garden for his rebellion against God, so now Israel would be exiled from Canaan if they rebelled against God. Another way of putting it is this. If Israel wanted to join the Canaanites in their idolatry, well then they would share in the judgment that God brought upon the Canaanites. God had destroyed the Canaanites off the land for their sin, and if the Israelites joined the Canaanites in their sin, he would do the same to them as well. Joshua's sober warning to the Israelite leaders here in Joshua 23, it really was a harbinger of things to come, wasn't it? You can't read the Old Testament without knowing where this story was headed. So that's what's in the chapter. And now I just want to consider, first of all, what is its main point? And then second, what are some lessons that we can draw from it as Christians today? So first, the main point in Joshua 23, well, it's very similar to the main point of Joshua 22, which we looked at last Sunday. In fact, really all three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, have all one main point. The main point is the necessity of God's covenant people, Israel, remaining faithful to him. How? By loving him and showing their love by keeping his commands. But there are certain lessons pertaining to that main point which come out specifically in this chapter. And I want to highlight five of them as we close this morning. First, remember who Joshua is addressing in this chapter. Verse 1 tells us that he has specifically summoned Israel's leaders to urge them to remain faithful to God after he was gone. Now, why did he do this? Two and a half tribes. In this chapter, it's the leaders. And then in the next chapter, it'll be all Israel. But why the leaders here? Well, 
because he knew that if the nation of Israel was to remain faithful to the Lord, it would have to start with these fellows, their leaders. And you know, that principle continues to be true with God's new covenant people, the church, just as it was with his old covenant people, Israel. It is critical that those of us who, for instance, are pastors in the church, shepherds, overseers, elders, that we lead the way in remaining faithful to the Lord. So that means that we as pastors, it begins with us, loving the Lord sincerely from our hearts. Pastors have to be careful to, amidst the busyness of life and and even the rigors of ministry, to sustain and to cultivate within their own hearts a genuine and sincere and passionate love for Jesus. How does that happen? Well, first and foremost, through daily communion with him, reading his word where we hear him speak to us, and through prayer where we pour out our hearts to him. That is the lifeblood of our any relationship, that communication. And with God, that is how we cultivate a relationship with him on a daily basis. But it also means that we as leaders must show our love by obeying his commands. This means that we confess sin and we repent of sin when the Lord exposes it in our life as leaders. We're not above such things. It means that we are not just hearers of the word that we are teaching to others, but that we are doers of it ourselves as well. Now, I hasten to say that leaders will never fully practice what they preach. My wife and children give a hearty amen. But the point is that we cannot be blatant hypocrites like the Pharisees refusing to do ourselves what we tell others to do from God's word. And of course, leaders must also have the courage to then preach and teach the word to the congregation of God's people, calling them to hear the word of the Lord and to follow their example of loving him and keeping his commands. And then leaders, of course, must be there, like Moses and Joshua were there for Israel, to provide both patient help and loving but firm accountability to the people as they strive to be faithful to God, being mindful of the weakness of all of us as sinners that they share as well, we as leaders. I think of Peter's wonderful words to pastors In 1 Peter 5, where he said, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, that type of faithful leadership, of course, doesn't guarantee the faithfulness of a church, but it certainly is in God's providence difficult for a church to remain faithful if their leaders are not. Second, We are reminded from Joshua 23 that being faithful to God is not just about keeping or breaking rules. Are you a checklist type of person? Rather, it's about remaining faithful to God in a personal covenant relationship. Do you think of yourself as being in that kind of relationship with God? Remember how God had called Israel to cling to him? rather than turning away from him to cling to the Canaanites instead? And I explained that that term, cling to, it's the same word used to describe that union between a husband and a wife in Genesis 2.24, which of course is 
patterned after the relationship that God has with his covenant people. Well, we as Christians, we're united to Christ, the Son of God, in the bonds of the new covenant. And this new covenant relationship, it is analogous to a marriage relationship. It is personal, it is intimate, it is deep. Indeed, the Bible calls us the very bride of Christ, Ephesians 5. So being faithful to God, you see, it's not just a matter of keeping rules or breaking rules. It's a matter of remaining faithful to our covenant commitments to Jesus Christ. It's about giving him, first and foremost, our highest love. It's about being loyal to him, like David's mighty men were loyal to him. So when we're talking about keeping Christ's commands, we're talking about keeping the terms of our covenant with him. Just as Israel kept the law, at least ideally, to keep their, the terms of their covenant with Yahweh. You see, our obedience, brothers and sisters, is an expression of our covenant love for Christ. It's an expression of personal faithfulness to him. And by the way, on the flip side, when we reject his commands in order to indulge our own sinful desires, or when we reject his word in order to get cozy with the world, it is a matter of personal unfaithfulness to our great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to violate our covenant with him to betray him in order to give our love and loyalty to another. You know, James talked about this in James 4. He called his Christian readers out. You know, James was pretty rough. <laughs> but he was calling them out because he said, you're just being driven along by your, the passions of your flesh and your behavior, fighting and quarreling with one another. And he says, this is... Making yourself a friend of the world. This is an act of spiritual adultery against God. Listen to his words. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he warned them, look, this type of behavior, it evokes God's holy jealousy. He says, is it for no reason that he says in his word, he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to be within you? And then he called them to humble themselves, to mourn over their sin, to repent and turn to God, and he will give you more grace. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. He is merciful to all those who repent. See, this is why obedience to God's command is treated as so important, and disobedience is treated as so serious in Scripture. It's because it's about faithfulness or unfaithfulness to our covenant with Jesus Christ. It's a matter of giving him our love and loyalty as our great bridegroom has loved us and given himself for us and purchased us with his blood or betraying him in order to join the world and serving the passions of the flesh. Third, a third lesson we can draw from Joshua 23 is that our faithfulness to God as his covenant people is a response to and is sustained by his gracious provision. 
You know, I mentioned the way that Joshua prefaced his call to Israel to be faithful by reminding them, Israel's leaders in this case, of all that God had done for them. This was verses 3 through 6. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you, verse 3. And then he encouraged them to be faithful by reminding them of God's promise to help them. He said, one man of you puts to fight, flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he has promised you, verse 10. Now, brothers and sisters, this same basic pattern is also true for us as God's new covenant people. And it's vitally important for us to understand this pattern. We are called as Christians to be faithful to Christ by loving him and doing what he commands. But it is critical for us to recognize that our love for Christ is a response to his love for us. This is what the Apostle John so famously stated in 1 John 4.10. Ben made mention of it in his prayer this morning. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then again in verse 19, We love because he first loved us. And then our ability to love and to keep his commands It's not inherent to us, left to ourselves. We don't love God. We are haters of God by nature. It only comes about by God's work within our hearts. It's something God strengthens us and empowers us to do. I think of Galatians 5.22, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Our love for God, our love for one another, it's a fruit of of the Spirit of God whom he has sent into our hearts to dwell within us. I think of Ephesians 2.10 where Paul indicates that our willingness and our ability to do good works that God calls us to is the result of his first work in us to make us a new creation. For we are his workmanship, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, we can be faithful to God by loving him from our hearts and doing what he commands as an expression of our love because he has first melted our hearts with his own love and made us a new creature and strengthens us for obedience through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so I would say to you, as Joshua said to the leaders of Israel, in order to encourage them, To be faithful to Christ, I say to you, you can love God. You can keep his commands. Oh, not perfectly, but truly, because he has loved you first, and he has made you new, and he promises to give you strength to do it. Fourth, fourth lesson that Joshua 23 teaches us is that the sin which entices us to be unfaithful to God only offers empty promises. You know, we saw in verses 12 and 13 how Joshua warned the leaders of Israel, if you turn away from the Lord to cling to the Canaanites remaining among you by intermarrying with them and then worshiping their gods, then those very Canaanites will become to you a snare and a trap and whip on your signs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land. In other words, the very sin that Israel thought 
this will make me happy, would end up entangling them and bringing about their destruction and ruin. And you know, isn't this principle true of every sin? The reason sin is so enticing is that it promises to give us something better than God. In fact, you know, just as he did in the garden with Eve, where Satan sought to lure her into sin by portraying it as if God's command was somehow holding her back from something better than God. So Satan does that with us. He seeks to lure us into sin by telling us, oh, God's commands, they're, they're not what's best. In fact, they're malicious. He's only trying to hold you back from something better that will make you truly happy. And so we indulge our sinful desires even as Eve ate that apple, believing that doing this will offer us greater happiness than God. But you know, God, God's warnings through Joshua and Joshua 23, they remind us that that is a, a deep and destructive lie. Sin deceives us. Oh, it promises greater happiness than God only to turn around and, and snare us and torment us until we're destroyed. So sexual immorality, it leads to emotional shattering. You know, gender transitioning in our day, it leads to deep regret and despair. Harboring bitterness, it leads to loneliness and misery. Pride comes before a fall, the Proverbs say. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Proverbs 23, 21, the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Oh, the Lord has said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But be certain sin is a hard and oppressive taskmaster jesus says i have come that you may have life and have it to the full sin has come to kill and steal and destroy and knowing this warning brothers and sisters believing it really letting it sink into your hearts especially you young people with the world out in front of you knowing this warning provides you an important deterrent to resist the seductive but deceptive appeals of the world and of the flesh and of the devil as they invite you to betray God, to commit adultery against him, to indulge in sin with the promise that it somehow offers something better. Finally and fifth, a lesson which we can draw from Joshua 23 is the warning that God will judge those who are unfaithful to him. You know, as we saw, Joshua closed his speech with this sober warning to the leaders of Israel that if the nation betrayed him and were unfaithful to him, the Lord would be just as faithful to bring the curses of the covenant upon him as he had been to bring the blessings of the covenant upon them in the past. This is what he says, verses 15 and 16, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you the, all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord our, your God. You know, and this reminds us of 
some important truths about the way God deals even with the church today. Now, of course, we need to be careful. We need to begin with the fact that under the new covenant, the wrath of God has been turned away from us once and for all through the propitiatory death of Christ, the wrath-satisfying, justice-satisfying death of Christ in our place for our sins. He bore the judgment of God for all of our sins, for all times, so that we might have perfect peace with him forever. So Hebrews 10, 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, Those who have been saved by faith in Christ are only now disciplined by God for their good. As a father disciplines every son he loves. And his perfect love has now cast out the fear of final judgment from our hearts. Indeed, I would say if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you do now stand guilty before a holy God because of your many, many sins. But out of his great love, he has sent his eternal divine son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, into the world to pay for the sins of all who believe in him and to rise again on the third day to accomplish victory over sin and death for all who believe in him so that they might be forgiven and reconciled to him forever. So if you haven't done so already, There's the good news. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and you will be saved from God's judgment as a free gift of grace this morning. I hope that you will. But we should also notice that I quoted those two verses from Hebrews chapter 10. He goes on a little later in verses 26 through 31 to say this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, God had told the Israelites that if they rejected him, if they turned away from him to embrace the way of Canaan, to join the Canaanites in their idolatry, then they would share in the Canaanites' judgment. And so also, God now says to those who would be in the church and profess faith in Christ, but would then turn away from Jesus Christ to join the world in its unbelief and in its rebellion against God, then they would share in the world's judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that someone who is a true Christian can somehow lose their salvation. No, we sang it today from Romans 8. He will hold us fast. But it does mean that a person who at one time is in the church, saying, Lord, Lord, may prove they never were a true Christian by turning away from Christ to go back into the world over time. And their example does serve to all of us a warning that God uses to keep us on the path to remain faithful to Christ. 
Well, in conclusion, I began by mentioning the sad departure of the last evangelicals from the Church of Scotland because of its decision to ordain practicing homosexual ministers in 2009. You know, it's worth mentioning the Church of Scotland has suffered a precipitous decline in its membership over the last 50 years. By 2016, its membership had fallen to a mere 500,000, down from almost a million and a half. It's lost almost 40% of those 500,000 since 2016. And if present trends continue, well, it won't be long before the only thing left of the Church of Scotland are empty buildings, manned by false teachers, and supported by huge endowments. And while there may be many factors involved with why that's happened, I want to suggest behind them all is the judgment of God upon a church that long ago betrayed the Lord Jesus to cozy up to the world. You know, Joshua 23 stands as a perpetual warning to the people of God in every age. Stay faithful to him by loving him, keeping his commands. You know, as Christians, we know that Jesus Christ will have the bride for which he died. But it will be a faithful bride by his power and his grace. Those who reject him to play the harlot with the world will suffer the world's fate in the end. Brothers, sisters, let this be a goad to us this morning. May the Spirit use us to strengthen us to be faithful to the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for guiding us to your Son, Jesus Christ, in the bonds of the new covenant whose blessings are better than the old. We thank you that if we are in Christ, we can be confident that we are forgiven of our sins and reconciled to you and your beloved children, and that nothing will separate us from your love. And yet we hear the warnings of Scripture. And Lord, we know that we are called to persevere, to press on in the faith. And we know that if we are your children, you will enable us to do that. We pray that you would strengthen us to keep putting one foot in front of the other in the midst of our discouragements, our seasons of dryness, our entanglements with sin at times. Give us soft, repentant hearts, O Lord. And strengthen us together as a body as we walk this race of faith to continue to keep our eyes fixed upon him who has loved us and given himself for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.